If I, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But what any, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. And, and I think it would be fair to say that until recently, 
It was pretty much, well, at least if you were English, maybe it's different from where you were coming from. Until recently, it was pretty much socially unacceptable to boast, wasn't it? I mean, you just didn't do that. I mean, if a public figure were to boast about their achievements, or the money that they make, or the crowds that they draw, okay, that would be considered socially crass. And in large part, if you think about it, that is because of the influence of Christianity on our culture. Before, because before Christianity came on the, the scene, things were very different. And in ancient Greece, it was totally acceptable to boast. And as Paul is drawing this letter to a close, as we're entering these last few chapters, that is the situation that Paul is facing in Corinth. New leaders have arrived in the church there, and they have zero hesitation about telling people just how great they really are. Okay, but what I want you to see this morning is the way that Paul tackles this doesn't just undermine their boasting, it undermines, it answers why we feel the need to boast in the first place. Okay, first point then, the what and the why of boasting. The what and the why of boasting. Okay, look at verse 18. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. And when he's talking about many people boasting, he's talking about these new leaders, isn't he? He's talking about these new super apostles, as he calls them, who are more than happy to tell anyone who would listen just how super they really are. Okay, look how Paul describes their boasting. It is according to the flesh. And that word flesh in the New Testament, it can mean a number of different things, can't it? It can mean your, your flesh, your, your literal physical body, but it also can mean your life, or any life, life generally lived in independence of God, as if this life was all there is. And as if we were the captains of our own destiny. Okay, these leaders, these new people who have pitched up, are boasting about themselves as if those two things are true. They are, they are taking the areas that they are strong in, like their oratorical skills, or their leadership, or their spiritual experiences, or their intellectual sophistication, and they're bragging about them as if this is what life is really about, these things. And their bragging about them tells you that they think they deserve the glory for them, that their strength, their success is down to them. So Paul says they're boasting according to the flesh, as if this life, all of these talents we've got, all of this stuff that we have, as though this is what life is, and, I, and, it, and I've got it because I'm responsible for it. I deserve the glory for it. Okay, now think about how we can do something similar today. Okay, firstly, of course, people literally today boast in the flesh, in the body. Okay, whether that's by the pictures that we post on social media with the light just right, you know, pick the one that makes me look, you know, gets rid of the double chin with not too much glow off the top of my head. <laughs> or by the clothes that we wear or don't wear, you know, that draw attention to just how ripped I am or just how I've got, you know, everything's in the right place. Hey, look at me. 
Okay, but we can also, so today we literally boast in the flesh. Okay, but we can also boast the way these guys did. Think about the areas that tend to get our attention, that we notice in others and think, wow, that's impressive. Or that we wish others would notice about us, like our successes, or that next step you take up the ladder, or our skill in a certain area, or the nice things that other people say about us and how highly they think of us. Of course, we may not verbalize those things like these guys did, but we can sure think like it, can't we? And we boast in the flesh when we think that that is what life is about or that those things are down to us. We congratulate ourselves and we invite others to do the same if we verbalize that boasting as if we were the author of these things. And the question is, is why do we do it? Why do we boast? Why do we take pride in those things internally or ever express them? Now, commenting on this passage, George Guthrie, who is professor of New Testament at Regent College, says, because we want to be the best and to do the best, we want to get up that ladder of success and achievement. We want to get up that ladder of other people's opinion of us because we want to be told, hey, you're good. You pass, which tells you that we are after a verdict. We're after a favorable verdict. We're after people looking at our lives and saying, hey, you're good. You pass, you're there. And we put stuff out there to get that verdict. You know, one of my daughters um, was recently talking to a new friend about running. And you know, he was trying to persuade her to go running. And he said to her, do you know what? You have to have a why to run. You have to have a why to get up early and get out there and run in all weathers. And for me, he said, why do I run? To stay fit. And why do I want to stay fit, he said, so I can look good. And why do I want to look good? So I can feel good about myself. Okay, do you see why he, why he needs to run? And why somebody like him might talk about how much he runs or how good his times are or how fit he is so that he can feel good about himself. He's after a verdict from others and from himself, but he's also after an identity, a him that he likes, that he can feel good about so that he can look in the mirror and feel okay about himself. And when any of us draw attention to ourselves or something good that we have done, typically we're after the same, so that we can say to ourselves or hear someone say about us, hey, you're good. We're after that verdict. Okay, but there's another reason why people boast, why we might boast, and it's the one Paul highlights here in verse 20. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. And these new leaders in Corinth, they're clearly using the church for themselves, aren't they? For their own advantage, to advance themselves. Now think, why might someone do that? 
And the answer is, of course, when they're proud, when, when we're proud, and when we think we really are better than others. And whether it's the person in the pew, whether it's the preacher, whether it's a politician, whether, whoever, people can boast and tell other people about how good they are in a certain area to gain influence, to gain position, the position that they think they're entitled to because they are better than other people. Now, hopefully, you and I are not that crass, okay? Hopefully. Okay, think how we can do this subtly. Okay, we might drop something into a conversation that makes it clear, hey, I just want you to know how knowledgeable I am in this area, or how good I am in this area, or what other people, good things other people say about me in this area. And we might do that to get a stroke, to get that verdict, but we can also do it, not to get a stroke, but to get a seat at the table, to get our voice heard. And we push ourselves up to get leverage over others. And Paul sees exactly that happening in the church in Corinth, and he is determined to wean the church off of those leaders. But how does he do it? He does it by turning boasting on its head. Second point then, the weakness of boasting. The, the what and the why of boasting and the weakness of boasting. Look at verses 16 and 17. Let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Okay, so Paul, he's going to fight fire with fire. But as he does, he's making it abundantly clear this is not the Lord's way of doing this. This is the sort of thing that fools do. In fact, he is going to show himself the direct opposite of everything that your average Corinthian would have bragged about if they could. He's going to show himself the opposite of everything they would have considered sophisticated or clever or anything that they would have thought that's what a leader should be like. He is going to boast in weakness. Except if you look, that's not how he starts, is it? Verses 21 and 22. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So in terms of Jewish heritage, in terms of salvation history, I am equal to any of these guys. But then he says, no, in fact, I am more than their equal. I am better than them. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Okay, and this is where you would expect him to really start setting out his stellar spiritual CV. Hey, let me tell you about the degrees I have been awarded. Let me tell you about the churches that I've planted. Let me tell you about the books that I've published or the conferences I get invited to speak at. But interestingly, he does the opposite, doesn't he? He says he's so much better than them in all the areas which they would have despised. 
verse 23 again. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. These are the things that in Corinth's Corinth's elitist, materialistic, image and prestige conscious culture, these are the things that they would have thought were the exact opposite of power leadership, anointing, or social success. Paul has to work hard. No networking at the thermal baths for him. He gets thrown into prison. No smart dinner parties for Paul. He is repeatedly beaten. No designer clothes on his back, just the scars. By the standards of Corinth, this is a man who has failed. And then he says, he has endured far more dangers in missionary service than anyone, including verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 40 lashes less one, that's 39 lashes. That, those were the punishment given by Jewish synagogue officials to punish heretics in their midst. Think about that, five times. Where, whenever Paul pitched up somewhere new, where did he first go to preach the gospel? To the synagogue, every time. Despite carrying the scars on his back of hard-learned experience, Paul keeps going back to synagogues with the good news. If that had happened to you and I once, we'd have said, Do you know, I think I'll give a synagogue a miss this time. I think I'll go to the thermal baths instead. Okay, Paul keeps on going back there. What would the smart set in Corinth have thought about that? Tut, tut, tut. You'd think he would have learned, wouldn't you? That's not very wise. And Paul is saying precisely. And he says he's faced risks from crossing mountains and rivers and seas. He's faced danger from bandits and from so-called respectable citizens. And in verse 27, he gives a little summary in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he is not saying that so that they or you and I go, what a hero. What a man of action our Paul is. He's saying this because they would have considered this the opposite of having made it in life. A couple of Sundays back, Sue and I went to a new church plant in the UK, and it was great. It was, it was, I tell you what, it was lovely to go there and just be somebody sat in the pew. Except when we walked in the school hall where the, uh, where the church was meeting, because of the COVID regulations, all the doors were open, like we should have here, all the doors were open, all the windows were open, and it was freezing. Okay, we hadn't been there more than two minutes before I started complaining. Okay, why? Why do you think I started complaining? Because I'm sat there thinking, I deserve better than to be cold. I deserve better than this. Because like these Corinthians, I think comfort is what I deserve. 
And Paul is saying, sure, now take a look at my life. It's the opposite of what you think you deserve. It's the opposite of everything that you consider a success. You want to talk about your strengths? Well, let me tell you all of those areas that expose my weakness. You see, both in Corinth and up until today, we tend to think of leadership in terms of charismatic personality and dynamism, don't we? We tend to think of leadership as impressive gifting and authority of success and results. And Paul is saying, no, true Christian leadership is demonstrated in the weakness of life laying down service. Now, if a leadership guru were writing his latest bestseller that you can pick up at the airport bookshop, you know, entitled you know, 12 Steps to Releasing Your Inner Steve Jobs, he would almost certainly include some case studies, wouldn't he? You know, some autobiographical or you know, examples of successful others' stories as to how you too can be as great as this. And that is what Paul does next. He relates three events, which are the kind of events in, in his life, in his experience, that would have made it into the leadership guru's book or not. Okay, and the first is taken right from the beginning of his missionary career, verse 32. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, you know about founders' myths, don't you? You know about you know, founders' stories, about the stories that get told in an or repeatedly told in an organization or a company about how the organization began and how the, you know, the, the founding individual, the guy who started it all, how he pulled it off against all the odds, like you know, Jobs and Wozniak and Apple in the garage. Okay, this is Paul's founder's story. This is how it all began. But if you look at it, it is the exact opposite of what those founders' myths are trying to achieve. Because this is the opposite of glory. You know, when, the, when the Roman army was besieging a city, and the time came to try and take it, and the siege ladders were thrown up against the walls, and arrows and rocks and boiling oil were raining down, there was one highly coveted award for the first soldier who was brave enough, who was valiant enough to get up those scaling ladders and be the first over the wall. It was the corona muralis, the crown of the wall. And Paul is saying, I am the opposite of that glory. I'm the opposite of that valor. I deserve no crowns. Instead of climbing the wall and taking the city, I fled. That's his first example. Then he moves on to the second example, and it is a life-defining spiritual experience. Chapter 12, verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise and he heard things that cannot be told. Okay, so imagine, back in Corinth, 
there are these leaders who are boasting about their spiritual experiences. So Paul does too, except he doesn't, does he? He talks about it in the third person. I know a man. Now, I don't know if you ever talk about yourself in the third person. When I do that at home and you know, say stuff like, well, dad thinks this, or dad would say that, or if you ask dad, he would say this, okay? and it drives my girls mad, okay? so I keep on doing it. Okay, Paul does it for a different reason. These other guys, they are quite happy to talk about themselves. So Paul deliberately distances himself from this and talks about it in the third person. They will tell you all about their visions. So Paul chooses one he's not even allowed to talk about. He heard things that cannot be told. Plus, this was 14 years ago, whereas they've probably had 17 in the last week alone. Okay, so why talk about it at all? because it sets up his third and final example, which is the peak of his boasting, interestingly, and it is the thing that brought him the lowest, verse seven. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Okay, and the question is, which you've probably thought about, theologians have thought about for years, is what was the thorn? And the answer is, we don't know. You know, was it something psychological, like depression? Was it something physical, like some illness or disability? Is something with his eyes, because he talks about that in Galatians? Was it a stutter? You know, because he talks about not being eloquent in speaking? Or was it one or more, you know, real human opponent? Because in the Old Testament, you know, God describes those who will oppress the people of Israel as thorns in their sides. You know, is it psychological? Was it physical? Was it human? Paul doesn't tell us, does he? What he does tell us is that it was given to him. That even though this was a messenger of Satan, probably because it kept on telling him how weak and rubbish you are, Paul, and you will never amount to anything. It was given to him. It was a gift. It was given to him for his good, to keep him, he says twice, from becoming conceited, to stop him from falling for the temptation of every leader, which is to think you're better than the rest and be consumed with self-importance. And maybe that is why Paul doesn't tell us what it was. Okay, because if it was his eyes, we might say, well, mine are fine. 2020 vision, self-importance, not a problem for me. If it was depression, we might say, me, not a problem, emotionally rock solid. If it was persecutors, we might say, not a problem, Everyone likes me. It's the fact that it could be any number of things that tells us whatever reminds us of our frailty, whatever tells us you cannot do life on your own, that is God's gift to us. Because like Paul, it punctures our pride and it brings us down to earth. And Paul says, verse 8, 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And God's response was, no. Now, maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you have prayed repeatedly for God to change your situation. Maybe even now, praying repeatedly for a change in your circumstances or for an answer, and there's no change, and there seems to be no answer. If you look, Paul didn't just receive a no, did he? Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul, you don't need the thorn removed. You just need my grace to deal with it. So look to me, Paul. Look to me and I will give you all the perseverance, all the endurance, all the ability to cope that you need. And your weakness will become the ground out of which my power in your life can grow. You see, it is not by thinking, I've got it all together. Or, I need to get it all together. That God's power will work in us and through us. It's as we realize we need him, that we're weak without him. And boasting displays either our insecurity or our pride. Either that we need to be told we're attractive or successful or clever because underneath we don't feel it, or the pride that thinks we really are a cut above the rest. But if you think about it, obviously boasting can never humble our pride but neither can it, or the verdict of others that it seeks to get, neither can it answer the insecurity that drives boasting. And Paul is saying, because Jesus said it to him, only the power of Christ can do that. Last point then, the end of all boasting. Okay, look at verse 9, where Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And Paul discovered that it was in realizing his emptiness that he could experience Christ's fullness. It was in his acknowledging his weakness that he could experience Christ's power. But it's also why he says in Galatians, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. If Paul knew what it was to have his request about this thorn denied three times, so did Jesus, as he prayed three times in the garden, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. But he too was denied. And it is that seeming weakness of Jesus that can give us strength in our seemingly unanswered prayers. Because we can think, why doesn't he take this thorn? Why doesn't he take this cup from me? Why isn't he here when I need him? When we needed him most, Jesus took the cup for us and he was denied for our sake. And here, Paul receives a thorn. At the cross, Christ was crowned with them. Not the crown of military glory, not the corona muralis, but the crown of the king. 
the crown of the king taking all of our thorns, all of our weakness, all of our sin, all of our suffering, all of our failures upon himself and giving his life for us as he was pierced for our transgressions. And it's in that supreme weakness of the cross that he becomes the ultimate saviour. It is in the supreme weakness of the cross that his power is supremely displayed because it's there in the seeming abject failure of the cross that he wins the greatest of all victories and sin is conquered and death is defeated and our victory is won. And that is why Paul will boast in the cross of Christ, because it shows us how needy and sinful and broken we really are, which just humbles our pride that thinks we, are, we have something to boast about. But it also answers our deep insecurities and that need to be told we're okay. Because the cross tells you, this is how much you are loved. This is how okay you are because of Christ. The Son of God died for you and all of your failures and all of your not being good enough, all of that has been taken away and now your heavenly Father, the judge of all the earth, the only one whose opinion really matters, he looks at you, he smiles upon you, he says, I love you, I approve of you, you are okay in my Son. And when you have his verdict, boy, does that give you a deep inner confidence. And it'll answer your need to have an identity. Because now you can look in the mirror and see someone you feel good about. You are a child loved by God. Because in Christ's beatings, you are healed. In his brokenness, you have been made whole. In his dying, you can find life. You'll never find that in any of those things that we tend to think are the ultimate, the kind of things that we brag about. But when you realize that Jesus is the ultimate and none of this other stuff and not us, then his grace comes flooding in to meet us in our weakness. It's why Paul says, verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Just look at that list. I think that's a remarkable list. How can you be content when people insult you? How can you be content when life is seriously hard? Or when everything is going wrong? How can you know that kind of emotional stability and poise? Only when your contentment, your sense that you are okay and life is okay is built on something more solid than your latest success or other people's opinion of you, which is the kind of stuff we typically boast in. But when it is built on Christ's death and his resurrection, and what that says about us, you can be content, whatever others are saying, however life is going, because you know he has already won the verdict for you. And knowing that will mean 
you won't need to use people the way that these new leaders were using people in Corinth. Instead, you'll serve them like Paul did. It's why he says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content. He's not in this for himself. He's in it for the sake of Christ, to see his justice and his mercy and his kingdom and his name expand. For when I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. Let's pray.